Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. My friend Jordan is here to introduce our guest. Thank you, Hilde. Ron Delicchiesa is a Boston radio legend, a member of the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Ron's been the lead host on radio for the Boston Symphony Orchestra for decades. He also had a beloved long-running radio show on public radio called Music America, where Ron and his guests explored the American Songbook, presenting some of the greatest American music from the world of jazz, Broadway, motion pictures, and beyond. He's the author of an autobiography called Radio My Way, and if anybody has a take on the great performers, it's our guest, Ron Delicchiesa. So, take it away, Hildy. Today we're paying homage. It's our ode to performers who faced lung cancer. And I have an unfortunately long list of 140 such folks in front of me. And um, I'm looking forward to celebrating their lives and what they've, their legacy, what they've left us with. And uh, it's great seeing you again, Ron, and also having Jordan with us. So um, I look forward to talking about some of our favorite performers and uh, you know what they meant in our lives. Give me a cup, cup few of those names, and I can we can elaborate on these people. <laughs> well, I've got one just right off the bat, Hildy, that only because he was so talented and died so young, Nat King Cole who actually visited other patients while he was being treated for lung cancer. At, I think, 45, he passed away. Thoughts on Nat King Cole, Ronnie? Well, Nat, I mean, uh, unquestionably one of the great singers of the American Songbook. And also, you know, he started his career as a, a jazz piano player out on the West Coast in L.A. with the Nat Cole Trio, Oscar Moore on guitar, Johnny Miller on bass. And then he finally realized he used to sing casually uh, when he, between the jazz sets. Somebody said, you know, Nat, why don't you try singing more often? Put the jazz trio aside for a while and then he signed it up with Capitol Records and the rest is is history but you know uh, again with the, with the smoking connection with Matt you always saw him with a cigarette in the little uh, things he made and then in his television show so it was just predominant, and unfortunately, it finally got to it gets to everybody eventually. Well, it's interesting that you bring it up because it added to the culture. There was something cool and elegant about smoking, you know, that encouraged people to smoke. Unfortunately, when the American Cancer Society created the smoke out, it turned into a stigma. So people were blamed for smoking because they deserved lung cancer, and we know better. Uh, Hildy, can you run down a few of those names for the audience and for Ron and me? Unfortunately, the list is quite long, but uh, some of my favorites are Rosemary Clooney, Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Etta James, loved Etta James, and... Donna Summer, and the opera singer Beverly Sills. Well, that's something that I know Ron can key in on as, a, as an opera buff and fanatic, too. Ron? Yeah, I, I never knew that, that uh, Beverly Sills was on that list. Of course, she came from Boston originally. Her, uh, her husband was Peter Grinot. Those of you who read, read The Globe through the years know that he was, a, I think, a financial editor of The Globe. But, you know, Beverly, uh, being around opera singers... Usually they're they're very healthy and they they don't smoke because they have to care about that instrument mm. right here it does it all without microphones so I'm very surprised to hear that although in the case of Nat Coligan if we can go back you know Nat playing in clubs so often too if he quit smoking he could still have absorbed a lot of smoke from being in those clubs 
I think that's another issue, you know. Second half, uh, yeah. Rosie Clooney, you know, she she was uh, just great right up to the end. I mean, she made some of her finest recordings during the latter part of her life for Concord Records. And then, of course, she was a, a, a great actress, too. You know, she was wonderful. Anything she did. And, of course, uh, she was very proud of her, her nephew, uh, George Clooney. Hilda, you mentioned Etta James, and you said you really admired her. As a vocalist yourself, tell us what is it about Etta that you really dig? I sing At Last, and I've recorded it myself. Obviously, people talk about soul music and don't think about it so much. You know, just as soul music, it's a genre. But soul music is really from the soul. Um, there have been so many amazing singers predominantly, and for me, Black singers who have been able to be in touch with their hearts, their souls, their pain, their joy, and um, it always has spoken to me. So um, I love that song, and I know uh, they dance. I think that was the Obama's choice uh, for their dance at the first, I think, the first inaugural. And so... um, it's it's yeah. just a favorite of mine, and she was too. There's also an Etta Jones, not to be confused with Etta James. Etta Jones was another famous singer from that same period. She made a lot of wonderful recordings. The song, of course, that Etta James is famous for, Hilda, as you know, is the one you recorded at last. And that came from the Glenn Miller Orchestra. They had their first big success with one of those songs. At last was in the movie Sunrise Serenade, and a beautiful sequence where it's sung by uh, the modern airs and the Glenn Miller Orchestra with that sound. And of course, Edda's recording has become a staple. You hear it everywhere. I mean, right. it's, uh, right. you know, it's kind of, a, kind of a national anthem in a way of the American mm. songbook. Speaking of uh, national treasures, Dean Martin, sort of after his passing many years ago, has become really hip and cool. People love him. His music's used in movies. There was a Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. Uh, ain't that a kick in the head? He really did have panache. And, and for people who wonder... Ronnie brown liquid in the uh, in the cocktail glass wasn't necessarily booze. He really wasn't the character he portrayed, was he? No, you know, Dean was his own his own man. As a matter of fact, when Sinatra and his pal Sammy and uh, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford would always call Dean late at night. Come on, Dean, we're having a party. He said, "No, I'm, I'm going to bed. I have to be on the golf course tomorrow. <laughs> Just don't bug me." He was so he never really associated uh, during his leisure hours with with those guys except when it was special and he had to be on the stage and do his shtick. But no, he was out on the golf course at 6.37 in the morning. That was his great passion. But it was it was indeed a great loss. Again, he, he made so many people who were just happy. Elvis said that when you listen to me, you're hearing Dean Martin. He was uh-huh. greatly influenced by Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those recordings he made, Moonstruck, uh, That's Amore. Boy, I remember when that hit the charts. It just stayed on the charts for week after week. And uh, it was Dino all the way, you know, and his voice is so recognizable. You can't you can't mistake Dino. Right. right. Dino Crosetti. Very smooth. Wasn't he from Cleveland, Ohio, I think? Somewhere he in was Ohio. From, he no, was from Steubenville. 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 Yeah, every there year in go. Steubenville, there's a, every <laughs> year in Steubenville, there's a Dean Martin uh, weekend festival. Well, you go around to places he worked, the bars he worked at. He was a bartender. He was a, a crooner, a singer. He was a real hustler during those days. Pretty good actor, too. And people, uh, you know, poke fun at his sort of laid back style. But he appeared in a lot of films with John Wayne and uh, Matt Helm and those great detective knockoffs. I mean, he was uh, he was a pretty busy guy. Remember the disaster movie that he starred in, Ronnie and uh, yes. Hildy? Probably the first official disaster film of its kind. What was it called? 
Uh, <laughs> it was called Airport in 19, I think 1970, and wasn't he the pilot uh, of the plane? And Van Heflin oh, really? had the bomb, and uh, Helen Hayes won the Academy Award. Why do oh, I know gosh. this? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's great, though. It's great. Um, I know. I think I've told both of you. Uh, my father, I grew up uh, in Cincinnati, and right outside of Cincinnati, um, in Southgate, Kentucky, was a nightclub called the Beverly Hills Country Club. And my dad was one of the owners of that nightclub. And um, Martin and Lewis, uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, uh, performed there uh, early in their career. And um, at one point they ran up to my dad and said, hey, we just got a call from Hollywood and uh, we'd like to go make this movie. They want us for this movie. And when we do, we're going to be big stars and we will come back to Beverly Hills Country Club and perform for the following week at the same pay as now. How about it? So my dad says, sure, you know, go right ahead. Unfortunately, they never returned. So I don't know what to make of that, you know, but uh, I guess Hollywood <laughs> went to their heads. Sam Giancana and the mob crowd, I think up in near Chicago somewhere, uh, they had they had this nightclub and Dean and, and uh, Frank had promised and Sammy that they would appear for him. And there were no questions asked. He went, they went up and did the show and it was recorded. Ah. I know uh, yeah, I know that uh, we've had that recording in our library. Jordan, you have it too. I do. It's a great one. It's live. They were, they were singing because uh, they couldn't refuse that offer. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think my dad had the same level of persuasion. <laughs> or the same muscle behind them at that point. Speaking yeah. of uh, performers, let's take a look at actors and actresses. Betty Grable is one who passed from uh, lung cancer. And again, this is about their lives and celebrations. But a couple of uh, uh, my favorites, and I'm, I know they're yours too, however, obviously Bogey. I've got a big portrait of Bogey in my office. And he was uh, the epitome of tough guy. And the list goes on and on of just iconic people. Chuck Connors, another one. I was going to say, I bet a lot of people listening don't even know who Betty Grable was, but she oh. was, well, you know, I, honestly, I, uh, you know, she was such a beauty. It's not my era, but, but before my era, but she was, I guess she was the pinup that every GI had during World War II. Right. And she did a lot of musicals. I think MGM, right? Ron, was it MGM? Yeah, I, I think MGM, and uh, of course she was married to Harry James. Right. And another trivia, another little trivia story: her legs are embedded in front of Grumman's Chinese Theater in cement. <laughs> they were also insured for a million, right? Weren't they, Ronnie? I yeah, believe so. But getting back to the World War II era, any veteran of World War II who is uh, listening to us would know that because on the inside of every barracks there was a photo of Betty Grable. I mean, millions and millions of photos uh, on airplanes on the outside of the fuselage, Betty Grable, and the guys would go by and they'd just pet her on the derriere and hop into the plane. You know, she, <laughs> oh, was, gosh. she was a very important uh, part of the, the history of World War II. You're right. She was the classic, quintessential pinup girl of all time. Well, speaking of that general era, another performer that I, I just thought was fantastic was um, Ann Miller, the dancer. Um, she was just an extraordinary dancer and was in uh, some some great movies. Yeah, she was a big star, and she, I think she brought a smile to so many faces also. Just an, an amazing yeah. performer. Yeah, she worked with uh, M uh, Mickey Rooney. I think it was Sugar Babies, wasn't it, Ronnie, when it came to town? Yes. 
And I don't know if Ron was there for the press conference with Mickey and Ann Miller, but Mickey rode down the banister at the Wang Theater, each foot on one side of the banister, like a three-year-old. And (laughs) it was really fun. That's so great. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. Upstage Lung Cancer exclusively uses music and the performing arts to get the word out about lung cancer. Through concerts and activities, Upstage helps fund much-needed research. As the saying goes, find it, treat it, beat it. Please subscribe to this podcast series and tell your friends. Oh, and if you'd like to join our efforts, consider a donation of any amount at upstagelungcancer.org. And now, back to the podcast. Robert Preston, who was, you know, the music man in persona, he was just so extraordinary. He was on Broadway. He was in the movie of that film. And um, his uh, charisma uh, was just something extraordinary. So he was somebody I, I really enjoyed. He made a lot of fine movies, too. You know, it goes back to the black and white uh, period of playing the part of heavies, tough guys uh, in those movies before he hit it big with, with Music Man. By the way, that was my wife's first musical. Oh, when really? Youngster, yeah, when she was a youngster, she saw Robert Creston in Music Man. Later on, he gave his archives to BU in the Gottlieb, Gottlieb Collection, mm. and they honored him. And I had the pleasure of sitting next to his widow uh, at that event. She was very gracious, and all of his archives were at the BU uh, Library. And and it's interesting about the music man, Meredith Wilson, of course, who didn't write a lot of musicals, but I think if it weren't for Preston's performance and he just brought it to life, we might not have had the success of the music man. Do you agree? He owned that, that role. That role, you know, was just a part of him. Nobody could duplicate it. Right. And I love that song, Trouble. You got trouble, my friend. Right, right here. here right, you got trouble right here in River City. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that 76 trombones classic when he's out marching in front of that band. Wow. Get goosebumps uh, just thinking about it. Shows yeah. up on Turner Classic Movies a lot. Thank goodness for Turner Classic Movies. That's true. Just about everybody we've been talking about has appeared in one of the <laughs> in Turner Classics at one time. So Ted Turner did a great service to the world when he preserved that library. Another Broadway star that I loved, and he wasn't exactly a household name, but I just thought he was just out of this world was Stubby K. And um, when I was a little girl, um, my dad and mom and I went to to New York and we went to see some Broadway shows. My dad always knew people <laughs> from being in the nightclub business. So we always got really super duper seats. And I remember seeing Guys and Dolls with Stubby K. And one of my favorite Broadway show, uh, songs is um, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. You, you know, you're rocking the boat. Yeah. Um, and they're just just was no one like him. I mean, again, the joy. That's, for me, music is joy. It infuses us. You know, people talk about spirituality, and I just think music is the highest form, for me, of spirituality. It just infuses mm-hmm. a human being with a the, just the highest part of being alive. But I just, I'll always remember him. And, um, and then also Frank Lesser, uh, who was the composer and the lyricist for mm-hmm. Guys and Dolls and um, How to Succeed in Business and many other uh, shows, also lost his life to lung cancer. And I love Frank Lesser. And we did an ode to Frank Lesser uh, one year for Upstage Lung Cancer. Um, every fall we do a concert and we honored Frank Lesser. And um, I had read a book that his daughter uh, Susan Lesser wrote uh, about her father, 
And so much of what she had to say about her father was how I felt about my dad. Um, so I kind of fell in love, since I was close to my dad, I fell in love with Frank Lesser. And Susan Lesser was nice enough to let us use the, any music we wanted without any rights or worries. So mm. I, you know, I was uh, grateful to her and certainly grateful to Frank Lesser for the amazing lyrics and music. I mean, it's hard enough to do one or the other, but to do both. Wow. That's, you know, that's something. Mentioning Stubby K again, useless trivia, but I'll toss it in anyway. He had a <laughs> bit of a revival in the late eighties, I believe in a movie called Roger Rabbit. You remember that one? I yes. do. Animated uh, thing, Bob Hoskins, and I believe Stubby K, almost replicating the role he played in uh, in Guys and Dolls, oh, no. working with cartoon characters. Just thought I'd toss that in there. Well, that's, that's a good funny. point because Roger Roger Rabbit, I believe, was the first animated feature to use mix the uh, the characters from Looney Brothers with Disney. That's right. So Pinocchio with Bugs Bunny, very rare that that happened. You know. Wow. They were very, very uh, aware of the, of the, what they had as images in the cartoon. Indeed. That's that surprising because they're the territorial. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. surprised they did Termite that. Termite Terrace. <laughs> There's a name that uh, Hildy and I were talking about before coming on the air, and it's it's a Boston connection, and that's Leonard Nimoy, of course, legendary actor for Mr. Spock and so many other roles. But uh, Ron, I, uh, my dad knew him, and uh, they actually sang together. Did you have any connection to the Nimoys? Uh, he Dad had the barber shop in Mattapan, and, did and you, don't, did, wasn't he a part of the West End too? Yes, the development that was destroyed because of urban renewal, and he came back and I think tried to save it. I he, think I, I, he did. I he did. He did. He did some uh, fundraising and some films and some narration yeah. and so forth. But uh, great, great talent, and uh, just from the streets of Boston, from the streets of Dorchester. Uh, Mr. Spock on Star Trek uh, was. Certainly one of the, the big favorites of that show. There's no question. I know you were, Ron, you were talking about um, old movies. And one of the people on the list who was amazing is Buster Keaton. It turns out this year he'd be 125 years old if he had, if he had lived. And he was just amazing. I don't know that people know he was an actor and a comedian. He was a director and a producer. He was also a screenwriter. He did his own stunts. Um, and it turned out years later, I guess he went for some general physical. And because so many of the stunts in these early, um, you know, uh, silent films were were just, you know, horrific, uh, turned out he had a, a cracked spinal, uh, you know, a spa, uh, his spine was cracked and he had no idea that that was true. Hmm. I, I remember reading that Houdini gave him his nickname of Buster um, his name, I guess, was Joseph. But I thought that was kind of cool, that connection. I guess Houdini was friends with his father. And, um, and, and one other factoid that I have that was interesting. And I think anybody listening who doesn't know who Buster Keaton is, you can go on YouTube, Buster mm. Keaton, and you can see some clips. And you'll just be amazed at how extraordinary he was. And I guess his most famous film was The General and Orson Welles. And if you don't know who Orson Welles is, gosh, you have a whole education <laughs> in front of you. But, <laughs> but Orson Welles said uh, that it was one of the greatest films that was ever made and that he saw um, Buster Keaton as the greatest clown ever in cinema. Mm. So, I, you know, our hats off to celebrating his life and his legacy today. 
Ron, any comment on Buster Keaton? No, I would agree with Hilde. He was truly one of the greatest, perhaps not the great, the greatest. When you consider, you know, all the amazing things. He did a thing on top of a train, you know. Yes. Yes. There was, and he, it was it was Buster Keaton, you know, no no stand-ins. He did it all. Uh, he, a baseball movie he made too, where he did some great baseball stunts. Uh, anything he did, he was perfection personified. Right. And to do it all during the silent era, his last movie I think was Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Where he used to go over to Gloria Swanson's uh, castle and play with play poker at night. What was yeah. his nickname, Ron? Great what? That's a good that's a good one. I got you both on that. The Great Stone Face. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. Because yeah, he did. He never seemed to smile, right? He never seemed to smile for a man who made so many people happy. There is a wonderful documentary on his life, I think narrated by Peter Bogdanovich, which you can find out there on uh, the streaming platforms. And he, mm-hmm. you're right, Hildy, a giant talent who should be remembered. Yeah. And you mentioned Wells, too, you know, uh, when, you, when you think with Citizen Kane and then struggling to match that. I mean, he had reached perfection at such a young age with, with Kane. And then years after, he made some great movies, but never achieved what he did with Citizen Kane. But the movie was in unprecedented in the breakthrough it made in cinematography, the voiceover style. There's a whole Keynesian quality to it that was picked up by so many other directors. He was, uh, he was right at the top. Yeah, well, speaking of people who were innovative that we're you know, honoring today, uh, one was Walt Disney, of course, um, who also lost his life to lung cancer, but left, you know, left a legacy that will live forever in the films and the videos and the cartoons and Disney World and Disneyland, um, an extraordinary person, but also another person. Um, I know when I was very little, one of my favorite TV shows was I Love Lucy and Desi Arnaz um, also faced lung cancer. And he was really an extraordinary person. He always looked, you know, he was the second banana, Lucy, <laughs> you know, and they just made jokes, um, you know, with him. But um, he was very influential and he was an innovator. He was the first person, I believe, to use multiple cameras yes. in their shots on television. Mm-hmm. And um, he used, they wanted a live audience. That was his idea. Better, better than these canned laughter um, machines, which is horrible to listen to. And, and he also, uh, you know, um, was influential in creating syndication, which was beyond brilliant because all the reruns and all the money that he and Lucy made from uh, those, those shows are still being shown today. You know, if you look, um, there are TV channels that are still using them. And then, you know, he created Desilu Studios. So... Um, you know, he's, uh, it was quite something. He was, uh, yeah. And, and when you think about that show in 1950, 51, the idea of a mixed race couple was unbelievably bold. I mean, he, I, I mean, he's Cuban, she's American, uh, Caucasian. And somehow they convinced CBS and the sponsors that this would work. And boy, did it ever. Although they wouldn't let them sleep in the same bed, right? Well, nobody <laughs> did. Or they were a husband and wife team. You had to have separate beds. You're right. Yeah. I think Ralph Cramden and, and Alice might have slept in the same bed because we never saw the bedroom, Ronnie. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> well, speaking of television, uh, just recently uh, we lost Larry King. And you guys must have some feelings about about Larry King, who also faced lung cancer. Yeah. Well, he started his career in, in Miami Beach, old Miami Beach. And I believe his first interview 
uh, I heard this talked about recently on CNN when they did a massive tribute, was uh, in Wolfie's famous Jewish delicatessen, I think on Collins Avenue. They had a microphone there and he was doing a talk show on radio, a very early talk show, one of his first. And his first guest was Bobby Darren. Mm. I just found out. But uh, there was also another another side of Larry King in a book on Miami Beach I have down in my collection that apparently he ran into some some trouble with his finances down there. And uh, once he was able to cure that, he got out of town and established himself out in Hollywood and, you know, the important places. And, of course, it was Ted Turner who picked him up and that really started his career. But uh, he, he was, uh, was in old Miami Beach at Wolfie's. He was a which day. I think it's still there. It is. Yeah. Wolfie's the Delicat- bagel. You can't go wrong. <laughs> a schmear. <laughs> I go to Wolfie's all the time. <laughs> they know who I am. I know who I am. You know who you are. This Re- guy is a great, great man. I'm telling you, we'll go to the dueling Jackie Masons if this keeps up. But, <laughs> oh, God. but getting back to Larry for a second, would you guys agree that he was one of the last of the Damon Runyon style, rock on tour style, you know, the suspenders and eating in the deli no. every day with his friends and com- knowing comedians and knowing gangsters and all that? I will agree. However, there's one other personality I'm going to mention right now. I believe it was on the same part of it was totally a New York guy. And that's Joe Franklin. Oh, yes. Remember Joe Absolutely. Franklin? I do, yes, yes. He I don't. No, no. Thousands of thousands of people, all New York people, you know, backstage technicians, guys that ran the lights. <laughs> and then he would bring in somebody like Marlon Brando. I mean, yeah, yeah he, Joe, the Joe Franklin show, you can look him up. He, uh, he passed away a few years ago, and I was privileged to meet him. As a matter of fact, uh, he was promoting this young, beautiful soprano named Christina Fontanelli. And uh, I picked up Joe Franklin. And we took him over to, to hear Christina in a concert in New Jersey. But he was the quintessential New York guy. I mean, one of the many Damon Runyon type characters in New York that nobody seems to talk about or remember. But I do remember Joe Franklin. You can Google him, look him up. You'll see him. Yeah, Ronnie's he, right. Uh, he would have Marlon Brando on. And then in the next segment, his dentist would come in. <laughs> Joe's dentist, not Marlon's. <laughs> Maybe both of them. Office. I hear his office was like an archive. I mean, there was everything in this little <laughs> office, you know, down around off 42nd Street. You'd walk up, take an old elevator to his office, and the place would be just jammed full with everything all around him. But he could find everything. Joe Franklin. Yeah. That's funny. I'm glad we could talk about him because he's one of my unsung heroes. Yeah. Hildy, well, on the list, yeah. there are, and you mentioned a few in the introduction, but there are younger people who, uh, sadly, we lost too young, and, and perhaps cigarette smoking, indeed, was not even connected. And you mentioned Donna Summer, who was a Boston-bred uh, gal who was the disco queen, and man, oh man, was she hot in the 70s and early 80s, mm-hmm. and then sang gospel and came back and did disco. Another one is Andy Kaufman. Who, right, Latka. Latke? Latka. <laughs> Latke is what we have on, on Hanukkah. <laughs> Getting back to Jackie Mason here. We're, <laughs> Latka. Latka. Lat, Latka, that's right, something like that. But he on was, Taxi, on, on his TV show, right. Taxi. But he had a, a brilliant sort of flame-out career that uh, was, it was a bizarre performer, but he stands out. People still remember him today, anyway. Well, and he did. He died very young, um, which was a huge loss for TV and Hollywood and who knows where his career could have gone. I'm sure it would have just continued to skyrocket. He was quite a character. 
Yeah, very lovable. Really. But I was thinking of other television personalities was Ed Sullivan, who, who also faced lung cancer. And uh, um, I don't know, you know, there may be people who don't know who Ed Sullivan was who are listening. It's I know. Yeah. Um, it's just true. But um, he he was extraordinary. And I, I guess, you know, in a, a, I did a show once on early television. Um, and so um, it was just uh, a lot of fun to be able to look at some of the old is it kinescopes? Kinescopes, yeah. Yeah, um, of some of the early TV shows. But um, but Ed Sullivan was quite something. And he, he would have anyone from Topo Gigio, the little mouse, a little <laughs> puppet, to like the, the Brazilian marching band, you know, 10,000 uh, you know, people, uh, to the Sinatra, to every great performer. And uh, I remember reading about him and that he and his wife, uh, I think her name was Sylvia. They lived in a hotel. And I I remember when I read about him as a teenager that he lived in a hotel. And I thought, that's what I want to do when I grow up. How cool would it be to live in a hotel? You could get room service. And and it just would be, it just seemed magical to me. I kind of lost that uh, mm-hmm. aspiration. But um, I, I do remember that. He's a very powerful influence in television because, you know, he, Broke the Beatles, Elvis. He put them on when they were very controversial, and uh, he looked always looked very uncomfortable on on stage. He wasn't really uh, meant to be a host, and he would frequently get lost and mix up, uh, you know, who he was going to introduce. One classic Ed Sullivan story: uh, he brought on Connie Francis, and she sang, and she came back out for a bow, and he says, "Cat was, ladies and gentlemen, it's Connie Francis. Connie, come here for a minute." Is is your mother still still alive? Is, oh, God. Is your mother still dead? Something like that. And yeah. they printed it because he was so, he's always struggling. Yeah. Is your mother yeah. still dead? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, no. Is your mother still dead? He had uh, Senor Wences on, too. He made his career. And, of course, the theater is the Ed Sullivan Theater now. Right. Where all the shows come out of. Where, where David Letterman did his show for decades, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is just, again, inside performance baseball stuff. But... Uh, every comedian who did uh, voices would do Ed Sullivan in the 60s and 70s, right, Ronnie and, and Hildy? And you had some really great ones. I, my favorite, well, there were two. One is still with us and a, a brilliant guy, John Biner. I don't know if you remember that name. Very good Ed Sullivan impressionist who did it, I guess, the, did the show maybe uh, 30 times. So he got to know Ed intimately. And the other one was a fellow named Will Jordan. Do you remember that name, Ron? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, what a an amazing ability to capture Ed Sullivan with the jerky movements and, and the voice of chorus, you know, and the whole thing is just brilliant. But you're right. It was a very eclectic show. Sunday nights with Sullivan, every millions of people, the television set was tuned on. They planned their entire day around him. And he'd have, like, uh, you know, Polish dentists who were going to drill for you. And <laughs> you'd bring on Maria, Maria Collis, you know what I mean? Oh, God. Totally a mixed bag, but it worked. It yeah, worked. Yeah, crazy. That's hilarious. Again, there's so many, and it would be such a pleasure to honor each and every person who faced lung cancer, um, and it takes a lot of courage. But one person um, that I think we could uh, end with today is um, Leonard Bernstein, the great Leonard Bernstein, who uh, uh, I'm sure... Ron has some stories about, but we, uh, Upstage Lung Cancer, did a 
a fall concert in which we performed um, Leonard Bernstein music. Uh, and it was funny, uh, when, when I was preparing for that show, there used to be a coffee shop near my house. I won't put in a plug for them, but um, a <laughs> coffee shop near my house. And there were young people who were working there. Um, and so I said, yeah, gee, we're, we're going to honor Leonard Bernstein. And I got a, I, I'm sorry, I don't know who he is. And so to me, that's just a sad comment about, you know, life goes on and we we meet new people and we learn new things. But I know my daughter, Michaela, for example, can tell you all kinds of people who lived in the 20s, performers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's worth a show like this. I'm hoping people will hear some names and find interesting from our conversation that we'll want to learn more. So, yeah, any thoughts, memories uh, about Leonard Bernstein, Ron? Well, you know, Leonard Bernstein to me was always like a comet that streaks across the sky. You know, you get one every three or 400 years. You can't categorize Leonard Bernstein. He was Mr. Everything. I mean, who else could write something like West Side Story and then conduct Die Valkyrie or Wagner or Beethoven or Mozart, then sit down at the piano and play Gershwin, then write a great book, musicologist, uh, writer, humanitarian, uh, somebody who was in the forefront of the civil rights movement. He was Mr. Everything. And when he came to Tanglewood, uh, I was privileged to be there for a 75th birthday celebration. And it was such a spectacular event. People for months and years afterward were talking about it. And they had these T-shirts printed, I survived Lenny's 75th. <laughs> <laughs> everybody was there, you know, and and he loved everybody. He was just so uh, giving in how he felt about his musicians, you know, at the end of the performance. He'd go around and hug everybody around the podium, kiss all everybody. I mean, it was his heart was so open that way. But uh, yeah, the, the, the Lenny Bernstein uh, will always be remembered as, as one of the truly uh, unforgettable giants in everything he did. And where did he hail from? Was it Lawrence, Massachusetts? Is that where he came yeah, from? He was from Lawrence, and his father was sold beauty products. Yep. <laughs> then he went to New York as a kid and got a, I think, a scholarship at Juilliard or someplace like that. His big break came, he was playing piano someplace and conducting, and you got a call from the New York Philharmonic that the regular conductor was sick. I think it was Bruno Walter. And uh, Lenny appeared, conducted the orchestra, and made the front page of the New York Times the next day. Bernstein, wow. big hit with New York Philharmonic. And then he just, he just went on and did all those great things. Wow, the great American story, right? Yeah, truly. Well, I, I want to thank both Ron and Jordan for making this a pleasurable uh, time on our podcast tonight. And just to say thank you and thank you for your stories. And, you know, we hope that we inspire um, our listeners to learn more about lung cancer and certainly to honor those. We've talked about well-known folks, but obviously there are people in all communities and under all circumstances who face this disease. And uh, it takes courage. It takes love. We want to remember all who have faced this disease. So thank you so much for being with us. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. 
There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.